Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. The arrival of an Israeli prime minister every autumn for the United Nations General Assembly is always headline news in Israel. It's an opportunity for our leader to meet with other world leaders. We look at which leaders are meeting with him, which leaders are walking out of his appearances and speeches, what the prime minister will say in his address to the General Assembly, and how he is received. Everything is scrutinized, particularly for the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. The UN has always been a bully pulpit. He's famous for his speeches, for his visual aids, for his charts. And coming to New York is also always a time for him to meet and greet the top leaders of the American Jewish community, where they offer him support as the leader of the Jewish state. I think it's fair to say that we've never had a visit quite like this one before, where the prime minister, as he did overnight, had to enter his hotel with protesters, not pro-Palestinian protesters, but Israelis and American Jews calling out shame on you as he sneaks in the side entrance. Another first about this visit is the fact that on the ground in New York to cover all of this is Haaretz correspondent Judy Maltz. Judy is familiar as a correspondent in Israel to Haaretz readers and to listeners on the podcast. She's our former diplomatic correspondent. But this is her first appearance on our podcast in her new role as Haaretz's correspondent in the Big Apple. Welcome, Judy. Thanks, Allison. It's great to be on the podcast as usual. First of all, how are you settling in to life in New York as opposed to Israel? Oh, God, it's been uh, quite a transition. I'm not used to the quiet. Every time I hear a little bit of noise, I think, oh, my gosh, is there a protest down the street? And then I remember, <laughs> oh. I'm not there anymore. So yeah, a bit of a shock to the system. This week, you're getting a taste of home in the fact that you left the protests, but the protests are coming to you. Let's start at the beginning of Netanyahu's trip to the United States, which, as we know, comes in the eye of this storm over his judicial revolution and the mass protests against it on the streets of Israel that have been going on for the past nearly nine months. This trip was supposed to give Bibi a chance to change the subject to defend Israel on the world stage as the master diplomat, which is supposed to be his forte. But it hasn't really quite worked out like that, after all. The trip, first of all, started off on the wrong foot, didn't it, Judy? Oh, for sure. It started off on the wrong foot even before he climbed the stairs of the plane when he told reporters that those demonstrating or planning to demonstrate against him in the United States, the Israeli expats and the American Jews were in cahoots with the Palestinian Liberation Organization and Iran. Not a great way to start the trip. He then tried to walk back on this statement, but the damage had already been done. And anyway, nobody believed him at that point. Then first stop, California, Northern California, Bay Area. He is greeted in San Francisco by images of himself in orange prisoner garb projected on the Alcatraz prison from the island there. Then there are numerous demonstrations in the Bay Area. And as you said, his arrival in New York, 4.30 in the morning, dozens of Israelis, who knows what these people do? I mean, don't they have to go to work today? But I'm not asking. Waiting for him 
at the Lowe's Regency Hotel as he entered. And of course, he couldn't enter, as you said, through the main lobby, but with the kitchen staff through the back. At four in the morning. Exactly. These are all people gathered on the streets to do this at three and four in the morning. And they were actually prepared to do it earlier because originally it was thought that he would be landing at 2 a.m. So people were told to be on alert from two. So many of them had come down earlier. So basically the whole night they were up. What was the reaction you observed to this statement that he made, basically saying that protesters, you know, who were against the judicial overhaul were in cahoots with the PLO and Iran? Because we're including, obviously, groups like Brothers in Arms, who are, you know, elite members of fighter units who basically have dedicated their lives to fighting Israel's enemies. And here they're being compared by the prime minister of the country as being allies of these enemies. Well, the other night, I was at a private parlor meeting. It was actually a little fundraiser with the leaders of Brothers in Arms. I think at this point, really nothing that Netanyahu says can shock them or most other Israelis. But what they were trying to explain is that this is all part of Netanyahu's assault on the people of Israel and on the people's army of Israel. And that's how American Jews need to see the situation going on in Israel. They talked a lot about the Yom Kippur War. They even talked about the Holocaust, which was maybe carrying it a bit far. But the idea was we are as much at risk today as we were 50 years ago when Israel was attacked by enemies from outside. The main difference being that today Israel is being attacked, as they told these potential donors, by enemies from within, headed by Netanyahu. And did these potential donors, were they basically there to sit and listen to them? Did they get a lot of questions, challenges, feedback as to, you know, that they were using these extreme, extreme analogies? They did get a lot of questions. I heard some very strange questions. You know, one person, this, this was actually at another fundraiser last night, asking, why don't you guys resort to violence already? I mean, what's holding you back? So, you know, obviously everyone was a little shocked by that one. But people were more trying to give them suggestions of how to talk to the American public, American Jewish public, and make them understand the gravity of the situation in Israel. They were telling them, don't talk about women's rights so much or LGBT rights. That's not really going to move American Jews. You really have to frame this more as an issue of security and safety that Netanyahu is a risk to the security and safety of Israel, basically to the future of existence of Israel as we know it. And if you frame it that way, it might be easier to get through to American Jews who still really don't understand what's going on or the gravity, the severity, the existential crisis. Well, they do have a lot to focus on in their own country. As you know, there's a lot going on there, too, which, you know, you've been writing about as well. So in relation to what's going on with American Jews, what did it say to them that in addition to attending the UN General Assembly, that Netanyahu's first stop and again, his major activity besides the UN General Assembly was to fly to Silicon Valley to meet with Elon Musk and do a live broadcast on 
X formerly known as Twitter with Musk? What kind of a message did that send? In certain quarters of the American Jewish community, probably among the vast majority of American Jews who consider themselves to be progressives and liberals, vote for the Democratic Party, the fact that of all people, he would choose to meet with a person who has more or less been deemed the big enemy of the Jews in America because of his decision to amplify anti-Semitic voices on Twitter or X, as it is now called, is, you know, people are just outraged by this. Of all the people to meet with Elon Musk. But again, you know, it's like, what can really surprise people about Netanyahu anymore? What I thought was interesting, Allison, you heard the conversation where Bibi said in his discussion with Musk that it had really been a mistake to push through the judicial overhaul as he had tried to in January with the override clause. I don't think he has ever really said that to an Israeli audience. Yeah, he used the words bad, that it was bad. And he said some aspects of it were a mistake, which are just words that he has never, never expressed in Hebrew. And one wonders if he would ever dare to say here, you know, given the right flank of his coalition. Exactly. So that was really interesting. You said that Twitter slash X has amplified voices, but Musk himself has gotten himself into a feud with the Anti-Defamation League and relationship with Kanye and with Donald Trump. So he is not exactly a beloved figure among American Jews. So the fact that the Israeli prime minister would choose him among every other American citizen to visit is saying something to them. Yeah, and the Anti-Defamation League. What can be more Jewish establishment than that organization? I'm, I mean, we're not talking about some far less highly critical of Israel uh, group, but this is the, the Jewish establishment. You would think with Netanyahu in this kind of struggle, he would want to be enlisting American Jews on his side, but this kind of makes it seem like he's written them off to a certain extent. Yeah. And interestingly, it doesn't seem that he has any meetings planned during this visit with leaders of the Jewish establishment here in the United States. I mean, maybe there are and they're being kept secret mm -hmm. because they don't want to give the protesters an excuse to hold another event. That could be, but it doesn't seem like he's meeting with anybody, which would be very, very strange. Though I should add that I don't think Netanyahu has met with leaders of the reform movement in years you know, not since he pulled back on the Western Wall deal. I don't think he's met with Rick Jacobs or any of the prominent leaders of the reform movement. But still, you know, he is in New York, you know, the Jewish capital of America. But some other groups like the Conference of Presidents, like APAC, have purposely withheld any kind of criticism of the judicial overhaul of the actions of the government in order to preserve their relationship with him. So it will be interesting to see if by the very end of the visit he has or hasn't met with them. While we're speaking about American Jews in your time now so far in New York, what kind of a mood are American Jews in right now when they look at what's happening in Israel? You say that many of them don't really understand what's going on. You've been attending events since you've gotten there. You've been speaking with American Jews. And today in Haaretz, you have a piece up about a sermon from uh, Rabbi Angela Buchdel that went viral about the Israeli protest movement and about what it means to American Jews. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think when we talk about American Jews, we have to understand that we're talking about two very distinct communities here in the United States. 
One is the classic American Jews, and the other is the Israeli expat community based here. And it is also a very, very large community. You know, estimates put them at somewhere between 300 and 500,000. Their two main bases being New York and Los Angeles, but they are all over the place. And as you know, they have been very, very active in the protest movement, holding, holding protests virtually every single week in cities around the country. So they are two very different groups. And the way they are responding to this is very different. The Israelis, I think pretty much from day one, understood what was going on and what this judicial overhaul meant and have been in a state of despair about it. You might ask, why do they care? They don't live in Israel anymore. But I think if you know Israelis who live in the diaspora, there's always in the back of their mind, maybe I'm going back. They always have the suitcases still packed. They want to know that there's a place to go back to. Many of them, of course, also have immediate family there. They travel there all the time. And I don't think that since the Yom Kippur War, there has not been an event that has shaken them up so much as this. For the American Jews, on the other hand, it is really, really difficult to make sense of this all. As one woman pointed out the other night at this meeting I mentioned previously in this apartment in New York with the brothers and sisters in arms, she said, Israelis are always crying for help. You know, there's either terror attacks or there's wars or there's missiles or there's elections. There's always some crisis going on. And in, it's a, in a way, it's like you're crying wolf. Every time this is something terrible, you've got to help us. Look at the conditions we're living under. This can't go on. So Americans don't really understand yet that this is something really different. We haven't seen anything like this before. As I was saying before that, it's an attack on the people from within. But it is starting to seep through. And as you mentioned, Angela Bookdahl's sermon, and she wasn't the only one. Now, from anecdotal evidence, and I'm talking to people, asking people, did your rabbis mention this in synagogue over the high holy days? Now, I think in Orthodox synagogues, it wasn't spoken about. And that's because, as you know, the Orthodox community tends to be more right wing. They are not on the whole, sympathetic to the protest movement. They tend to support the settler movement in Israel. So it's not something that would come up. Certainly, you wouldn't have rabbis asking in their sermons for congregants to go out in the streets and support the protest movement. But even until now, many non-Orthodox rabbis were hesitant to bring it up. And I think part of their hesitancy came from the other side, the left. It's like, why should we come out in support of Israel or Israelis when look what's going on in Israel? The occupation, the religious coercion. Israel no longer represents our values. So why should we support Israel? So I think what you're hearing in these sermons by these progressive rabbis is Yes, don't give up on Israel. You have to keep supporting it and you have to keep supporting the protesters because if 
there is any way we can preserve democratic values in Israel. It's only if these protests succeed. One of my stories just went up about, for the first time now, we actually have in Canada, and the Canadian Jewish community tends to be a bit more conservative than the American, there is a very large Canadian congregation in Vancouver that has invited leaders of the protest movement to come into the synagogue and talk to their congregation, which is a first in Canada. And on the other side, on the maybe more traditional, more orthodox, traditionally pro-Israel community, Bibi's remarks on the plane have been echoed in Israel by coalition ministers, by commentators who support the judicial overhaul. And they charge that the protesters, especially in New York, especially abroad, are helping Israel's enemies by washing Israel's dirty laundry in public. One of our ministers, Edith Silman, posted something saying, this is why I moved to Netanyahu's government, because you look at these terrible people who are saying bad things about Israel in public. Is there a discomfort in any American Jewish circles about the fact that this protest movement is, you know, following, trailing, yelling at Israeli leaders on the streets of New York and other American cities? Very much so. And this is not a new thing. One of the rabbis I spoke to last week, ahead of this piece I wrote on if and how rabbis would be addressing what was going on in Israel in their Rosh Hashanah sermons, was Rabbi Amiel Hirsch. He's a very prominent reform rabbi in New York from the Stephen Wise Synagogue. He said, He supports the protest movement with his entire heart, but he will not be out in the streets here in New York, and he will not encourage his congregants to go out in the streets. And the reason was, he said, people know me, and if they see me out in front of the Israeli consulate demonstrating against Netanyahu. They will not know that I am demonstrating against Netanyahu. They will immediately assume that I have joined the boycott movement against Israel. And I cannot allow people to think that I am in cahoots with the BDS or any other anti-Zionist organization. So in the United States, I will not go out into the streets. But if I am in Israel, I will go to every Saturday night protest. And if the Israeli protesters call me and say, please, we want you to address our Saturday night protest on Kaplan Street, I will be on the next plane and go there. But I can't do it here. This is really a big fear. And it's not only the protests themselves that they're afraid of being portrayed as anti-Israel or anti-Zionist or pro-BDS. It's also the style of the Israeli protests. As you know, when the Israeli protesters are out in the street, and here in New York as well, they call Netanyahu and his government things like fascist, dictator, criminal, criminal. Now, as many American Jews see it, a lot of Israel's enemies think these things, and we are simply playing into their hands by calling the government of the Jewish state by such names. You've put your finger, I think, on sort of the central dilemma of American Jews who care deeply about Israel, who are deeply opposed to what's going on here, those that obviously are following it and understand it, 
and want to do something about it. And as you said, have this dilemma, you know, are not the types of people who are, you know, out in the streets generally uh, protesting against the occupation. It's not in their nature. It's not in their DNA to go out and demonstrate against Israel. So what do they do? So many of them are more behind the scenes trying to support in other ways is what you're saying. I think the way they see they can support is through donations and through delegations. A lot of them have been talking about bringing delegations to Israel, delegations of solidarity, delegations that can participate in the protests and experience it there. They're just very uncomfortable about doing it here in the streets of New York. As for wider American public opinion, so much is going on in the U.S. and in the world. So I'm, you know, I can't imagine how much this is able to get any kind of attention in the U.S., but maybe you can help us see. We had these dueling mainstream media presentations. We had uh, Netanyahu talking about the situation and his sit down with Elon Musk on X Twitter, as much as people pay attention to that platform. And then at the very same time, almost, we had this big 60 Minutes piece on the overhaul protests, focusing on the Brothers and Sisters in Arms organization that was pretty hard hitting. Do you think either made an impact on American public? Public opinion, And are you able to gauge what people who are not plugged into the news cycles in Israel think of what's been going on here over the past eight or nine months, if they are aware of it at all? It's very early for me to say if and how they've affected public opinion here. All I can tell you is that the Israelis that I've spoken with were thrilled with the 60-minute report. It really energize them. It lifted their spirits. I mean, this was 13 minutes on one of the most watched programs in America about their cause. I think for Americans, so I haven't surveyed people about their reactions to it, but it seemed to me like a very good explainer of what's happening in Israel. The one thing that was missing for me in this piece was it didn't mention, let alone highlight, the role of women in the Israeli protests. We didn't see Shikma Bressler, who is really the face of the Israeli protests at all in that 60-minute report, or any of the other women's groups, or Esther Hayut, the Supreme Court president, Gali Miara, the attorney general, you know, women have been such an important part of the protest. This didn't come through in the 60-minute report. It was more about like, this is being led by army guys. They did have one woman on, a token woman, but it was really, this is an army thing. How do you see the 2024 upcoming elections kind of looming in the background when it comes to American Jews, when it comes to Americans in general. I mean, we remember the Obama years where things were so tense between Netanyahu and President Barack Obama. We saw how Donald Trump, pre-presidency, during the presidency, used this as sort of a partisan tool to appeal to the evangelical extreme pro-Israel right in that Obama was not friendly towards Netanyahu. Do you think that's why Biden is treading so carefully? 
carefully trying to balance between not rewarding Netanyahu, not giving him the White House visit, and yet meeting with him at this UN uh, General Assembly. And then just as Netanyahu is arriving to meet with Biden, we see former President Trump uh, posting a rather incendiary Rosh Hashanah greeting, kind of condemning the majority of American Jews for not supporting him. How do you see all of that? And how is presidential politics playing into how people are looking at this visit? Regarding Trump's Rosh Hashanah message, I mean, I think just like Bibi right now talks only to his base, we see the same thing with Trump. You know, looking ahead to the 2024 election, it's hard for me right now to think that in terms of the American Jewish vote, that there are going to be many American Jews who switch sides in this election. I mean, it's been pretty constant throughout the years. Somewhere between 70, 75% vote Democrat and the rest vote Republican. The progressive liberals vote Democrat. The Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox increasingly vote Republican. Are things happening in Israel going to change that? I'm not sure. What's interesting, though, is that for the first time you're seeing Israelis, the leaders of the protest movement, who understand the importance of forming an alliance with Jewish Democrats. You know, they never thought about them before. They were never on their radar. Now they understand that they are very important partners in their campaign to preserve Israeli democracy. And that's really interesting. But I don't know how it will, if at all, play out in the election. There's so much buzz in Israel and in the Beltway and in foreign policy circles about a possible deal for normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia again, ahead of 2024, and how President Biden wants this so badly, wants this accomplishment so badly. Do you feel like it will really make any difference to American Jews, to the general U.S. voting population, if that happens? It's obviously of huge importance to Israelis. For American Jews, I, I don't think they're very different on this particular matter than Americans in general. In that, you know, if it brings down gasoline prices, that would be a great thing because people here are obsessed with inflation. And I'll, you were asking me, Allison, in the beginning of our conversation, how has the transition been? Well, one of the things that has really struck me is how expensive America has become. <laughs> it's amazing. I used to think that Tel Aviv was more expensive than America. And I'm not living in the middle of New York City. I am living in a town outside. It's a pretty working class town. And the supermarket bills, the gasoline bills, I don't remember anything like this before. It has become very, very expensive to live in America. And this is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. So anything that can help contain inflation would be considered a good thing. So you're understanding now how many Americans are focused on the domestic situation and have limited bandwidth for what's going on over here, right? Exactly. Yeah. 
Looking forward into the new Jewish year from the perspective of American Jews, if we have a worst case scenario, if it happens that Netanyahu government forges ahead in its determination to have this full overhaul, to have the government control, for example, who chooses our judges, or let's say the government's first overhaul law, the reasonableness law, is nullified by the Supreme Court and Netanyahu's government refuses to respect the Supreme Court decision and we're thrown into a constitutional crisis. How do you see the U.S. and Jewish community reacting? You said that, you know, it needed to be painted as people were advising the brothers and sisters in arms as this existential dangerous security crisis. But how invested do you feel the community is there in Israeli democracy? They want it to be a Jewish state. They want the Jewish state to survive. But how important does it seem to you, to American Jews, that it remain a fully liberal democratic state? Until... Nine months ago, most Israelis took democracy for granted, and not until they started feeling that it was being taken away from them did they wake up. I don't think Americans are there yet. Like I said, the issues of democracy, LGBT rights, women's rights, religious coercion, you know, these are ongoing issues. Israel has always uh, been a bit problematic when it comes to LGBT rights, women's rights, religious coercion. That's nothing new. If this constitutional crisis, God forbid, causes a real civil war with blood in the streets, I think, you know, that would wake them up. Like Israelis, they also take democracy for granted. They were born into democracy. It hasn't sunk in yet. We have to see how this constitutional crisis, if it happens, how it plays out. You know, it could also happen that the Supreme Court overrules the government. The government says, well, we're not going to listen. So then it depends what happens after that. Does everyone get up the next morning and go to work or does the country stop? And the people go out to the streets with weapons. We'll have to see what happens. Well, Judy, we are going to hope for the best, aren't we? That's what we do in a new year. Of course. We look ahead and we're as optimistic as possible. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about how everything ended up. Judy, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope we spend more time with you from New York. Thanks, Allison. Great to talk to you. Shana Tova. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Haaretz New York correspondent Judy Maltz, to my producer, Nara Malkin, and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Music